Welcome to the Binge Your Bum Podcast with Ellen Sherman and Gillian Gordon. What's it going to be like in six months, a year from now? I mean, are we going to be watching lots and lots of reruns? Are we going to be driven to watch reality TV? But I watched an entire season of Naked and Afraid, The Legends. And what is that? What I don't even know what oh, it is. They put all these people who apparently make a living out of being survivalists. And they seem like normal people, except these are normal people who are taken naked. They take all their clothes away <laughs> and they put them in an environment. In this case, they put like 14 people in the Louisiana bayou with no clothes on. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to watch that. And they, and they <laughs> had to survive for 60 days. Not <laughs> even a cod piece? No, not a cod piece. Not, they really do manage to blur out the naughty bits you know, most of the time. But oh God, for if real. you really want an escape, Naked and Afraid Legends, Louisiana. Oh, my Bayou. God. Oh, wow. Well, hey, hey, welcome to Binger Bomb, the fabulous podcast that reviews global television streaming on all the platforms right. around the world. Yeah, with, uh, the, with the fabulous Gillian Gordon and the fabulous Ellen Sherman. Yeah, welcome to our 20th episode. <laughs> we should have a cocktail. Let's drink yeah, to that. Right. Cheers. 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 Ching, like, ching. Ching, for sure. Wow, I'm I'm very impressed. So what do we have today? Yes. Well, today we have uh, Ghosts of Beirut, which is a spy thriller based on real events and, and quite compelling. And the restaurant, which is a uh, a saga from Sweden about a restaurant and the family that runs it, and a, a small light. Oh, that's right, of course, a small, small light. light, which is this this the uh, part of the Anne Frank uh, yeah. uh, world. Next up, Ghosts of Beirut on Showtime. Well, Ghosts of Beirut is a four part espionage thriller based on a true story. It's pretty compelling, as you said. I mean, it, it's the hunting down and elimination of the 1980s Hezbollah leader, Imad Mugnea. Mugnea. Oh, God, please, God, help me. <laughs> Mugnea, who, who was responsible for a really extraordinary string of anti-American bombings and kidnappings. But he, he invented jihad terrorism. Right. And suicide, yeah. suicide yeah. bombings. Yeah. and Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, he, he was incredible. So he was considered by the CIA, the ghost, a ghost, because of course they didn't even have a photograph yeah, right. of him. So, so it was not, you know, it wasn't like Osama bin Laden who they had high school photographs and college pictures. And so this Showtime series mixes documentary style on camera interviews with scripted drama that goes inside the joint CIA Mossad operation. We meet former CIA operatives, journalists, Mossad spymasters, and, and this they all stress the significance of McNeil's reign of terror. It's created by the talent behind one of our favorite shows, Fauda. Yes. Avi Ishkarov and, of course, Lior. Heart, Heartbeat, Lior Raz. <laughs> like Fauda, um, the creators attempted to offer an even-handed perspective on the situation. As much as the show strives to humanize Mugdana and understand his motivations, it struggles to keep up with the momentum on the other side of the equation. And maybe that's because the sheer number of people who were tasked with trying to find him over mm. the years. There are three sets of protagonists over four episodes, none of them getting enough screen time to actually give the characters anything but the broadest brushstroke. And they randomly sometimes disappear. At some point, 
it became a lot of characters that I didn't feel I'd been introduced to. Yeah. I got a little confused. Was this an Iranian? Was this a Lebanese person? Were they Syrian? But on the other hand, the spy craft is impressive, you know, and there's plenty in Ghosts of Beirut for people who love watching mechanics of surveillance and the patience that it takes because it took a decade. So the, the Hezbollah guy, his planning as well as the CIA and Mossad. Oh, yeah, you're getting, getting both sides of the yeah. picture. You know, but nothing really, there's no real insight into how we got there. Sure, the guy was a monster, you know, but what role did our, quote, heroes have in making him one in the first place? And that's a question that Ghosts of Beirut really simply didn't have the time to answer. Well, that, exactly. I think it, they didn't have the time. I think other shows have tried to look at that question, and that was not their mandate, it seems to me. If anything, they got too caught up in the weeds yeah. of and the accuracy of how an operation like this goes forward, about how you decide whether you can do a kill if you're the CIA, and apparently the CIA have much more stringent requirements than Mossad does. I, I appreciated the fact that I saw how difficult it was. Yeah, no, you're to pull right. off I an mean, operation like this. Very good point. You know, and at this one point they can't kill him because he's standing with somebody else that's politically that's important so to them. Yeah. You know, yeah. exactly. So I'm I'm a real fan of Warren Beatty's Reds. Do you remember Reds? Yeah, yeah. And I so I've always really thought this idea of the mixing of documentary, you know, interviews with the real people who witnessed history alongside a kind of live action was a really, really interesting idea. So I was quite excited about that approach. I actually was confused because they were s- several of them were so good I thought they were actors. <laughs> Especially the one in the And nicely women. lit. Yes. Better lit than the drama. <laughs> as much as we liked it, it it stopped the thriller aspect of the show. So we kind of it kind of slowed us down. I mean, so for example, all of these big issues were there was no time to really explain. However, we have plenty of time for a subplot plot about Imad Bagnea's falling in love with the divine. Who's that about? It was Zineb Triki, who we all adore from Le Bureau. And I thought, yeah, of course, anybody would fall in love with her. But what what was that all about? I no. mean, there was a huge amount of screen time. Because I found that this guy who had spent his entire life devoted to this cause would allow himself to just be so sloppy. I mean- Completely sloppy. But look, it was good. I mean, he was, you know, even terrorists get sloppy. I guess. <laughs> and I, I soppy. I mean, the drama good. just felt awkward. And 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 I think it was awkwardly directed. I would say in a way. Yeah, they, mean, even though the acting was all superb and all the actors, all the casting was brilliant. You know. So what what do you think? I'm I'm kind of fascinated by the his, historical period. I'm fascinated by this type this genre, but it it didn't work for me. I just didn't care enough. Um. So I guess it's a bomb. Actually, I am not unhappy that I watched this. I, no, not either. Yeah, but I'm going to give it on the fence because I think that you're going to learn something from it and you might yeah. be entertained. And the good news is it's very short. It's short <laughs> and, and it has so, a great cast. So, so what can I say? What the? Next up, The Restaurant on Netflix. The Restaurant is the saga of a high-end family restaurant in Stockholm. So it's a Swedish production and about the family that owns it and the staff that runs it as seen through the perspective of four very different time periods over what over which much changes. So we're 1945, 1951, 1955, and 1968. 
The Lowenders, the wealthy owners, are led by Helga, a matriarch with three grown children who, when we meet them just after World War II, uh, are sort of in their late teens and 20s. There's a feisty, very attractive Nina, who is spoiled but bright and is at turns rebellious and, and kind of still cowed by her strong-willed um, mother. There's Peter, who initially wants nothing to do with the restaurant business, but he's studying law. And then Gustav, the plotting but sincere son, who's the only one really happy to inherit the restaurant business, even though it, as it turns out, he's going to have to share this over the decades, the share the ownership of the restaurant with his two siblings. But at the heart of the series and the restaurant is the kitchen, which gives the series a kind of upstairs, downstairs quality. Mm -hmm. We become involved with the lives of several of the restaurant staff, from the imperious maitre d' to Magan, a lowly waitress, to Ethel, her mentor, who is the kitchen manager and a chef herself. But the king of the kitchen is Stikan, an exacting head chef who also has a very complicated relationship, which is kind of sweet, with restaurant owner Helga. And over these four seasons, the lives of the characters and even the nature of the restaurant itself reflect the enormous uh, social and political changes that can happen over almost 20 years' time. The canvas on which that's most evident is the love affair between the privileged Nina and an enterprising lower-class young apprentice chef, Kale. Suffice it to say, things do not always go smoothly as this couple struggles with class discrimination, infidelity, mental illness, and eventually even addresses changing attitudes towards working women and women in general in, in, uh, in society. And that's an interesting theme for this series, how different women deal with the changing times seems to be a running uh, motif. Uh, and it's particularly evident um, in the story, and I thought that was kind of, kind of a really nice uh, subplot, uh, the story of Magan, who's the shy waitress and a single mother with a secret, who over the decades finds the strength to raise her voice and eventually becomes more fulfilled than she could have dreamed. For a time, Nina abandons her true love, Kali, and tries to become a perfect upper-class housewife. And after a sincere but disastrous relationship with a Jewish Holocaust survivor, the earnest Peter abandons his law career to run the restaurant and seems willing to ethically compromise to make the business work. And then there's poor Gustav, married and with children, who struggles with his own secrets, which lead he and his wife to quite inexplicably, I might add, <laughs> to become missionaries in Africa for a time. Not only do the staff reflect the changing times, but the restaurant itself mirrors how the decades are going to alter society. You can see this in the nature of the establishment's private dining room which when we start out is sort of hosting staid business dinners and is very formal, uh, eventually becomes sort of a post-World uh, War II big band dance hall, and finally winds up at some point by having a glitter ball twirling yes, around. The six, late 60s yeah, disco because, vibe. Because, Basically everything. They throw everything in. Yeah, this. yeah. So over, mm. the, so over the season, they do try, uh, and I think somewhat clumsily a bit, to add an element of danger and threat in the form of an unethical mobster who insinuates himself into the lives of the of the staff and the restaurant. The characters, they surprised me enough that, you know, I wanted to keep going. And it's a it's a long series. I think I don't know how many episodes there are in each 32, season. 32, I think it is. Yeah, it's a, I mean, they're, they're, a lot it's, of episodes. It's done. It's very beautiful, isn't it? It mm. looks great. It's nicely shot. It's got a, a lot of style to it. And and certainly echoes of Downton Abbey and upstairs exactly, downstairs exactly. with the I mean, I, I I found myself much more interested in in the, the kitchen staff than the family. And I felt that they lost sight of the kitchen staff in a way. I, I also really was not that interested in Kale, who who is a sort of romantic mm. idol. And Nina, who, you know, 
is just spoiled and doesn't stop being spoiled. And there's also early Ikea furniture and Lego blocks and things, you know, so, you know, there's, there's lots of fun, you know, and sort of spotting these things. Um, you know, it, it is very soap opera. Mm, a uh, little bit. Very. And and I found pretty much everything predictable. I knew that what was going to happen with Nina. I was knowing that I knew what was going to happen with the wonderful kind of old fashioned butler slash, you know, I guess he was what was head waiter. Oh, the, or, yeah, yeah, the Major D. Bellin Roos. I was slightly disappointed because Peter started out to be he was Peter Lowender, who who is one of the sons, and he he he'd been working uh in he was an idealistic these lawyer, rel- you know, yeah. resettlement camps had fallen in love with a deeply damaged French Holocaust survivor. You know, he was quite interesting, I thought. They throw in with Peter when he sort of loses his way and becomes a uh, slightly unethical businessman. They throw in his path a woman that he marries, who I didn't believe for a second. Brassy, horrible woman who sort of disrupts the whole family. And I didn't believe for one second that whole relationship. So it was annoying to me. I didn't want to watch Yeah, that. yeah. And, and look, there's one short season, which is summer of 51. Oh, yeah. Which, on the which I would say, actually, you know, maybe watch series one and then watch this because it's this wonderful where they have a they, they have a summer restaurant they all go to a summer place it's an engagement party for Nina. it looks amazing but again i just I, I i can't watch a show where i don't care about these two lead characters who are on again off again hot love i was fine with them because i found the other characters you know, took me away like Magan, the waitress who becomes a union supporter. Yeah. Union supporter. Sort of. Anyway, so we have the, we have a um, you know Vietnam vet who has you know turned up in Sweden as a protest against the war, becomes a DJ in the groovy new restaurant, and then starts having PTSD. And I thought, okay, okay, like okay, it's the right, kitchen now, sink. Now we right. got the kitchen sink. Yeah. So at the end of the day, there's four seasons. There's a lot of episodes. There's a lot to 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 love, and there's some stuff not to love. You know, I did I, I did stick with it, so I'm going to give it a binge. And you, I would like to give it a binge, but I'm not going to oh, so because tough. it looks great. It's very nicely done. It looks, it shines a light on a piece of history that is, is really fascinating and takes us up to the sixties. But I think that to be honest, the writers and the producers were not up to it. I think the performances are pretty good, but in the end, I couldn't, I just couldn't stick with the characters. I just didn't interest them. And I found myself fast forwarding, fast forwarding guy. Yeah, let me get through it. Let's get it. I mean, I, I do think the recommendation that you watch series one and then go to 1951, which I saw some reviewer give, was is, is, is a really yes, good idea. Yes, somebody have that idea you know, It's well. a really good idea. So if you do want to watch it, do that. But for me, it was a bomb. I'm getting tough in my old age. You are. I'll be seeing you in all the old Coming up, a small places. light on Hulu. That this heart and mind embraces all A Small Light, the latest miniseries from National Geographic and co-produced by ABC Signature and Keshet Studios, offers a new angle on the Anne Frank oeuvre by focusing on Meep Geese, who was Otto Frank's young friend and secretary. Um, Meep Geese is played by Belle Powley brilliantly and Otto Frank by Liev Schreiber. Meep, who with a few others helped hide... Otto Frank's family from the Nazis for more than two years. In so doing, the creators, Joan Rader and Tony Phelan of 
Grey's Anatomy, crafted glossy but extremely moving tale of resistance and courage. And that might have put me off if I'd known it, but I watched it. <laughs> And I didn't. I'm so glad I didn't know that before. Anyway, it celebrates the everyday people, you know, who risked their lives in Amsterdam in a way I I don't think I've really seen before. No. So I I found this really refreshing on that level. She famously said, "No one should ever think you have to be special to help others. Even an ordinary secretary or a housewife or a teenager can, in their own way, turn on a small light." in a dark room. For the first two episodes, Meep is just an ordinary girl. She was a refugee child. Her foster parents want her to pull her own weight financially, so go out and get a job or get married. She does, luckily, meet a a very nice, sensitive social worker, Jan is his name, and uses her considerable charm and stubbornness to land a job working for Otto Frank, who has a jello business it's a peptin it's, it's peptin it's, it's a sort it's of the, it's the ingredient in it's the ingredient in in jam marmalade. yeah yeah, yeah. Makes, you yes. put it in and it makes it sort of yeah, like jelly jello. yeah right. and he's quite sort of straight and and very you know austere actually mm-hmm. but he finds her charming basically a small light is a coming of age story really about me isn't mm. it um how she you can think on her feet, how she finds really clever ways of getting food for them and hiding them and the extended family, because it's not just the pranks after a while, it's more and more people also doing her job in the business because in essence, she starts running the business. And doesn't manager she, you know? of the business, yeah. And we really do wonder at her bravery because mm-hmm. what what she and John and and their friends were doing was was pretty awesome. Because Jan, because Jan himself, her husband, yeah. winds up working in his own way. Yeah. You know, and here an anti-Nazi. I don't want to say exactly what he does, but in his in his well, own no, way. No, no, you know, I think we should because I think it's a really well, he's, interesting. Well he's a resistance I mean, fighter. He, he ends up and, and and is it's a secret to her. Um and Yan is really a hero, isn't he? I mean mm. he risks his life for ration cards. The big highlight of the series for me was Liv Schreiber. And oh, you I know love, I really adore him. I thought Great. he was very subtle. It was very low key. Um and tragically we all know how Anne Frank and her family ended. But but this series artfully engages us in hoping it will never and that yeah. way, you know, we kind of are, we we just do not want to believe this delightful girl who had such insight won't survive. What I also thought was really interesting was the look at Amsterdam, uh, and we got a bit of a look at this when we were we looked at our Tuna Region series uh, a little while ago. Yeah, about seeing how, what Oslo, what Norway was like under occupation, but seeing Amsterdam and seeing the you know the conflicts that Meep has to go through because her best friend winds up you know dating a Nazi. Yeah, and is not concerned. She's not a bad person, but she's just not concerned. You know what's no. going on, and then of course. They're living in an apartment, and upstairs from them, a very nice member of the Dutch Nazi party moves in. So they have to watch themselves. So it's that little day to day. And the civil administration had such a good detailed record of the number of Jews and their addresses that the Nazis just walked right in. And you know that's um, that's why that's particular subplot, which I don't mind revealing, is that that Jan and the Dutch resistance actually blow up the Office of Records. You know, what I didn't also, which I thought was interesting. What I didn't know, and I must say, they're kind of the unsung sung heroes. Is that I kind of thought Meep was single handedly did this, and from the series, you see that she was in an office with several other people yeah. who were all you know part Brilliant, of this yeah. you know part of this effort. So. 
I don't know. I kind of would like to know what their stories were as well, but it was interesting because I did yeah. not know that part of it. Yeah. I was really touched by the relationship between Meep and Otto and very unlikely. Here she's sort of cheeky, you know, grew up in a house full of guys, had mm-hmm. to fight her way, says her mind. Otto is very, very polite, likes everything the way, you know. Um, and they develop this wonderful friendship, don't they? And in the mm-hmm. end, he lived with them. Yes, I said for seven years, which was, I was so touched and so happy because this was the only family he had left. Although I do, I mean, from a dramatic perspective, I felt that we lost Otto in sort of midway through the series. I kind of, we got too much into the sort of the outside world. And yeah, of course it has to be about, it is about the outside world, but I kind of missed Otto and and the wonderful performance. Um, I would also say that it, sometimes it felt a little bit slick. Could have been a little rougher. It could have been a little. Yeah, even, could have even moved the, a little faster. Even sometimes. the photography could have been a little grainier and so. Yeah, yeah, it just didn't you know. move fast. You know what would have been interesting if they'd somehow interspersed some documentary footage in there. You know, I would have yeah. I like black and white. I just would have been interesting to see. You know, I, I think this is thing that happens, and we've talked about it before. That you go into a period thing, and you also go into such a high profile story that people get way too reverent. Mm. But anyway, you know, I'll never tire of this story. And the wonderful news was, which I didn't know, is that she lived to 101. Yeah, so, I know she lived forever. She was you wonderful. Know, and, and she and Jan were together. And it was, yeah, I'm getting a tear. My was a really nice <laughs> end to the story. So, so for you? Oh, a huge binge. And for me, it's a huge binge. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I thought we wouldn't no, get no, there. That brings us to, I, I, I will say it again because I was impressed myself. That brings us to the end of episode 20. So we have given yeah. you, guys, we Congratulations, have, everybody. Yes, we've given you 60 series to choose from. Yeah. Um, Hopefully you can find something to watch. Yeah, I, I really, <laughs> honestly, you really have to. Yeah, and next week we've got, what? We've got The Hour, which is a BBC series, two seasons. Really, really stunning. We right? have Happy Valley, which has come back after several years absence about a intrepid policewoman who uh, is beleaguered by all sorts of things. And we have Black Mirror, which is oh, back. Yes. We're all going crazy because Black Mirror is back. And so that's a very British 21. And yes. you know why? why? Because I'm going to Great Britain. Oh, yes. So it all fits in very, very so nicely. So next time we hear from Gillian, she's going to be in, going to be abroad. Follow us on Instagram. Do check out the website, which is bingeorbomb.com, because it's going to give you sort of an overview of everything we've done so far. And, and let's talk about it. <laughs>